All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Ken Silva, our buddy from over at headlineusa.com. And uh, he also writes for the Institute from time to time, don't you? Welcome back, Ken. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, happy to have you here. We got important news to cover. So, um, first of all, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, I have not kept up with the in-depth, you know, minutia on this one. But, obviously, I paid attention all along. I've done a couple interviews in the past. And what I know is... Most important, I don't know if this is part of your journalism at all, or if this is even part of your claims at all, I'll leave you out if you want, but it seems very plain to me that this was part of the FBI's intervention against Donald Trump. After all, it was October of 2020 when this story broke, the, you know, infamous October surprise um, that means, you know, something, a, a big story release, opposition research release just before the election that's meant to tip the election. And the same time that the FBI was premeditatedly lying to Twitter and Facebook and the rest, that there was some upcoming Russian disinformation in the form of uh, accusations against the president's son that they needed to be aware of and censor. They were framing up a bunch of guys who, for intents and purposes, were a bunch of Trump supporters against a female Democratic governor out there in Michigan in a plot the feds said was to kidnap and kill her. So, and then another thing that I know is that three guys were acquitted of this last week, and I believe there had been a few more acquittals and at least one or two convictions before that, too. But at this point, the floor is yours. All I have to say is that I'm very interested in understanding this story and what you think really happened there. I know you covered this trial and uh, have a lot of in-depth knowledge about it. Yeah, sure. I think there might be something there with your description of this case as an October surprise, uh, because since the arrest of all the defendants in October 2020, uh, we've come to learn that this case was almost essentially manufactured by the FBI. I'm sure many of your listeners know by now the basic facts of the conspiracy case that was tried last year. You know, 12 undercover informants, three undercover agents were involved, uh, prodding and poking the defendants to say dumb things on audio and make them sound like terrorists. Uh, That was the main uh, conspiracy case against four men who were accused of plotting to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. Um, We already knew that was a dubious case. Uh, Two men were acquitted last year on the first trial. Two other men had a mistrial. Um, During the second trial, they were both found guilty, but that trial was heavily slanted. I mean, they even put time limits on the defense for for cross-examining certain witnesses. It it was ridiculous. Um, But this recent state case 
I would describe it as uh, even more dubious case built on top of an already dubious case. Uh, so these three state defendants were accused of providing material support for the main alleged conspirators, the guys who were plotting to kidnap uh, Whitmer. Uh, one of the guys, Eric Molitor, he took, I think, one car ride with an FBI informant and the so-called ringleader of the plot, a guy who's sitting you know, pretty much next to Terry Nichols right now in Supermax and ADX Florence. Um, so that's pretty much the only thing that one of the guys on trial last week was accused of doing, participating in a sole surveillance car ride. And then there was two uh, twin brothers, William Null and Michael Null, who were also acquitted last week. Uh, they were accused of also participating in another surveillance car ride that was driven by an FBI informant. And, the, and uh, surprisingly, the prosecution accused these guys, uh, these were supposed to be the, the real operators who were going to go after Whitmer. Um, you know, they're big, like six foot four, you know, heavily muscled. They look like kind of like a, a strong men. And supposedly, you know, they were they were the Wolverine watchmen uh, muscle, uh, which, you know, discerning listeners would already question, well, why weren't they charged with conspiracy in the federal case? Why were they charged with this lesser uh, material support uh, in, in, in the state trial? Um, but in, in any event, uh, the jury acquitted all the defendants last week after just uh, the government's case collapsed, which we can get into blow by blow if you like. But, but that's the case in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, OK, so that's great. And yes, please get into the blow by blow, because this is very interesting the way this plays out. You know, everybody knows how absolutely rigged the system is in so many ways. But for people to demand a jury trial and to be acquitted by a jury in a case like this, a case against the governor, a plot supposedly to kidnap and kill the governor. I mean, Obviously, the government takes offenses such as that, conspiracies such as that, in the absolute highest seriousness, the threat to their continuity as a state. And juries agree with the government about that, right? Juries are not on the side of anybody trying to kidnap and kill a lady governor of their state, no matter what party they're in or any kind of thing. So for them to get an acquittal here, when obviously can the presumption of guilt had to be through the roof, there must be a story to tell about what happened at that trial. And and really, there is ultimately a great lesson there about at least the potential for jury trials to really serve their purpose in this society, which is to prevent the government from just completely railroading people who don't deserve it. Yeah, Scott, I, I really thought these guys were going to jail, frankly, uh, not because of the jury, but because of the pretrial proceedings. Uh, pretty much the judge sided with the government on every procedural matter leading up to the trial, which actually caused two of the other defendants to uh, flip and turn state's witnesses. Uh, not that it did the government a whole lot of good in this case. Uh, but we can start with the fact that um, I think maybe like nine months ago, in the early stages of this case, a judge issued um, a random opinion on some procedural matter. But in that in that opinion, he named Brandon Concerta and Daniel Harris 
as co-conspirators. Now, Brandon Concerta and Daniel Harris were acquitted last year, so the judge essentially libeled them, still accusing them of being criminals, even though a jury of their peers found them not guilty. So that kind of just gives people an idea of where the court's uh, mind was uh, when it came to this matter. Um, Furthermore, the Michigan Attorney General's office would continuously put out press releases referring to the defendants as the, quote, Wolverine Watchmen, even though these particular defendants were not part of that militia. They were just uh, guys who uh, trained with them every now and then at, you know, at functions that were organized by FBI informants, and they were kind of uh, guilty by association, according to the government. Uh, another pre, a pretrial blow to the defendants came when uh, they were going to have Adam Fox, the so-called ringleader, testify for the defense about how this was essentially an entrapment operation. But the state, the state prosecutors threatened Adam Fox with more charges if he were to testify. So you've got a guy sitting in Supermax right now after being found guilty on federal charges last year, and he's still got more state charges hanging over his head just so they can shut him up. And now, to top it all off, uh, the week before the trial, the judge ruled that the defendants could not mount an entrapment defense against the government's case. Uh, there's a legal reason for this. Like, if you're going to cry entrapment, you're basically admitting that you're you know, you did the acts that the government accused you of doing, but you were goaded into it by informants. So I guess the judge's rationale is you either have to admit that you did something wrong and claim entrapment, or you have to just plead not guilty. Um, so despite the legal rationale, though, the judge's ruling severely limited the evidence that the defense could introduce in court. Like they couldn't really stressed the point that an informant was like the, the the commanding officer of the Wolverine Watchmen. That was something the judge said that they couldn't let the jury know about. So this thing really looked rigged from the start. Um, but the nice thing about state trials is that they're televised. And so we could really see the case collapse in real time when the government was actually trying to uh, present it to a jury. Um, one of the key points was when an FBI informant was caught on the stand presenting doctored evidence. Uh, he tried to string together two audio clips of Eric Molitor talking to Adam Fox to make it sound like Molitor agreed to participate in the conspiracy right before they went on a surveillance car ride. But in fact, the audio clips were hours apart. So Eric Molitor went on this so-called surveillance car ride, but he had no idea what the ride was it about. It wasn't until after the car ride, later that night that they're drinking, that they're talking about kidnapping the governor, you know, probably smoking joints or whatnot, and Eric says, dude, I'm in. But the actual action of going on that surveillance car ride, he, he had never agreed to anything in relation to the governor for that so-called so act of material support. Mm. So and which I'm sorry to interrupt your great narrative here, but I'll forget. And this is so important that it sounds to me if, you know, and I presume the government guilty, obviously, if I'm on the jury. But it sounds like what you're saying is that the FBI informants who were taking him on that car ride, 
they knew good and well that they couldn't get him to agree to go and participate in any kind of overt anything. So that they kept it a secret from him what they were doing. And they were just trying to get him to say something that they could use later. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Eric Molitor, the guy who was baited into taking this car ride, he was friends with Adam Fox. Adam Fox had actually gotten him a security job. But when he gets in the car ride, he sees this FBI informant named Jan- Dan Chappell, who he didn't know. I think that was the first time he even met him. And Chapel has presented himself as this Iraq war veteran, special ops guy. He would uh, go behind enemy lines and do laser targeting for, uh, I guess, infantry strikes. And so uh, like a hardcore guy. And I think Molitor was kind of intimidated and he kind of just sat there and, and, and took the ride. Um, uh, but get, getting back to the trial, I think another key point was when uh, the defense attorney got the key FBI agent who was on the stand to admit that his informants had trained the defendants and actually organized the training uh, sessions. Uh, One informant named Steve Robeson had property in Cambria, Wisconsin. Uh, They had a big training session where you might see some footage of these guys supposedly like doing drilling through a so-called shoot house. A lot of the stuff that the government kind of, put out in the presses and, you know, uh, in that October surprise in 2020 to make these guys look like hardcore terrorists. Um, But the defense attorney got the FBI agent in the trial to admit that that was all set up by the FBI. And I I think by then the jury was probably scratching their heads and wondering, you know, why are we here for? We're here for a crime that the FBI essentially uh, was, was training the defendants to commit. Yep. Well, same as it ever was. And, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a friend. He said, you know, he hears about all these cases, but he notices that like right leaning media, they only report on it when the FBI and traps right leaning people. And then leftist media will report on the entrapment, obviously, of leftists like, uh, say, environmentalist groups or something like that. Or typically you'd have leftists and progressives would be the ones and us libertarians to stick up for Muslims entrapped in cases like this, as we have at antiwar.com for all these years. Um, But really it's the same FBI making up crimes and then sticking citizens in them. And they do this all the time. And it's amazing that it's allowed to go on at all when, you know, it seems like most of the time they're making these people more dangerous. I mean, for example, in the middle of this caught up in this, Somebody could have killed a witness or some kind of thing. You know what I mean? Turning people into armed and dangerous criminals when they weren't before. You know, something like that. Mm -hmm. These things happen. You know, I was just, not to go too far off on this tangent, but I was just researching and writing about the Boston bombing in uh, 2013 for my book. And it's what 99% clear this guy was an informant at the very least they knew who he was and then after the attack they pretended not to know who he was for days mm-hmm. and it just seems like an Oklahoma bombing type scenario here where they could have prevented it and by the way you know what in Boston they were busy entrapping an American born American citizen on some fake plot to attack the Capitol building with remote control airplanes right while Zarnayev was putting together his bombs for the marathon. So what'd they do? They covered it up. And then what happened? 
they got away with it. I mean, imagine them getting away with that. And this is, you know, going back to Oklahoma City. 167 government employees and their babies killed. No ATF agents. But, and then they were able to cover that up? Oh, McVeigh didn't have any friends. Shut up. And then, <laughs> that's, that'll be good enough for you, really? You see this thing happen over and over again. Um, so, luckily, nobody was hurt here. I don't think there was ever really a threat to the governor, but somebody innocent could have gotten caught up in this, clearly. But now, I'm sorry, so go back to the story of what happened in that courtroom, because it sounds like you weren't quite done yet. Well, real quick, you just uh, jostled my memory. Uh, One of the stories I'm most proud of breaking about this case is that uh, you talk about conservatives and liberals just focusing on their, you know, their own confirmation bias. Well, I I broke a story about one of the undercover agents, uh, undercover agent Red in Michigan, the Whitmer plot. A month before, he was in Colorado infiltrating uh, Black Lives Matter, trying to get one of the activists to... Uh, assassinate Colorado's attorney general. And now the reason I discovered this story is because I was listening to Trevor Aronson's recent new podcast, The Alphabet Boys. Oh, is, I bet that's great. I'm sorry. I have not had a chance to hear that, but I'll vouch for him as such a great uh, journalist on this yeah. issue, especially. Uh, yeah. Trevor's the man. And it, it's a great, it's a great series. And, uh, so I'm listening to the series, though, and he brings up footage of the, an undercover agent in Black Lives Matter named Red, who was trying, uh, taking a car ride with one of the activists and trying to sell him a gun and, and get him to, uh, you know, assassinate the AG. And I contact a couple of the defendants in the Whitmer case. I play them the audio. We get a couple pictures of this guy's torso. We don't have any pictures of this face. And they're like, yeah, that's definitely the same guy, like the same tattoo sleeve, the same modus operandi, the same tactics, like everything about the, like the same height, weight, everything. It was like it was a bipartisan provocateur, like the month after trying to get the Colorado attorney general killed, he's now in Michigan trying to kidnap the governor. And I sent my story to Trevor Aronson. I hope I'm not speaking out of school, but he said, yeah, I didn't have enough information to definitively say this undercover agent was the same guy in both plots. But, you know, I kind of agree with the premise of your story. Um, So, yeah, that just goes to show that, you know, the FBI, any dissident political group, you're going to get targeted. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you might think, okay. All Black Lives Matter people are about to throw a Molotov cocktail at an innocent person's business. And all right-wing racists are about to, you know, lynch a guy from a tree. And so, of course, we want the government to keep these people at bay. And yet, that never seems to be the story. It seems to be like the government—oh, and, and every Muslim kid is believes in radical Islam, which means that, you know, he's about to blow up a building in your town. And so— um, you kind of have a presumption of support for counterintelligence operations against domestic seditionists, seditionists on that level. I'm not saying I support government activity of any kind because I don't, but I'm just saying I think there is broad-based support for the basic concept. But then the point is we find over and over again that it's the government finds some schmuck and makes him into a dangerous criminal. 
I mean, one of the obvious examples here, then absolutely proven example, is the Mohammed cartoon drawing contest in Garland, Texas, where the informant told the Mark to attack. And he did. He told them people can Google this. Tear up Texas. It's the only time anybody ever put those words together in that order before, as Carlin would say. What does that mean, tear up Texas? It means kill some innocent person. And he almost did. He wounded a security guard before getting blown away. And it was the local cops who blew him away, even though the FBI, who had entrapped him, were standing right there. It was the local cops who saved the people from the guy that the FBI had set against them, quite literally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and actually, you have a brand new story about that, too, here at Headline USA. But uh, we got to wrap up on, on the Whitmer story there. Me and my tangents, forgive me, Ken. But uh, So tell us again about what happened with this jury trial here uh, to wrap up, and then we'll cover your new uh, topic about the informants here. Yeah, just to wrap up the Whitmer case real quickly. Uh, so the defense attorney did a really good job of getting the FBI to admit that his own informants uh, trained the defendants, and that really upset the prosecutors. They believe that violated the judge's order that you're not allowed to argue any kind of entrapment defense. So the prosecutors um, objected, and uh, I think after closing arguments, they brought the issue to the judge, and the judge took it in account. And before the jury started deliberating, the judge tells them, like, you're not allowed to consider any evidence that was discussed during the trial about uh, the defendants being entrapped or provoked or enticed in this crime. <laughs> Disregard that. But I, I think the judge's kind of instructions really hammered it in the jury's head, that, uh, like reminded them, oh, yeah, all that happened. And that probably had a, a counter effect of actually refreshing the jury's memory of the FBI's egregious activity. Uh, it took a couple hours, uh, a couple hours, the jury came back, and I think a lot of people probably seen the, the footage of the acquittals on Twitter. It, it's really emotional. I highly recommend people check that out. It's better than anything on Netflix, just these defendants finally getting justice after being dragged through the mud for three years. It was pretty touching. Yeah, man, it's really something else, the way that they do this and Good for that jury for standing up and just saying that they don't believe in this. You know, I always thought like Jose Padilla, he was guilty of being an Al-Qaeda guy, but he wasn't going to blow up a bunch of apartment buildings and a dirty bomb and stuff. That was all a bunch of nonsense. And, you know, they had turned him over. The Justice Department had turned him over to the Defense Department to hold totally illegally and they let the CIA torture him with drugs and, you know, isolation, no touch Nazi-type torture, you know. Um, and then they finally indicted him. Bush, you know, wimped out before the Supreme Court got a hold of it for the second time. And they went ahead and indicted him and prosecuted him in Florida. I couldn't believe the jury went along with that and convicted him anyway. It's like, we know that you guys tortured this guy. He's an American-born American citizen arrested by civilian police on American soil. Still well, I pisses me off, though. Because the point of a jury is... Not to be a rubber stamp on whatever the prosecutor wants, like Bill on King of the Hill. You're supposed to be the heroic last stand for justice when the government is the criminal in the case, you know? Well, I actually think that's a crucial point to make because yesterday it came out that Michigan's attorney general is at some private nonprofit event 
uh, blasted the jury's decision and say, hey, these, this is ancient Antrim County up in northern Michigan. This is obviously a right wing jury that just let off their their buddies. And that's just first of all, it's disgusting that the attorney general would attack the own you know institutions of democracy that these people claim to value so much. But second of all, as you know, if you're on a jury, if you're a registered voter, I don't care if you're a Republican, you're not a far right winger. You're probably like a chamber of commerce type Republican. So to claim that like the jury was in bed with the defendants is just egregious. And really, the attorney general should be kicked out of office for making such an irresponsible statement. Yeah. Well, folks, sad to say they lied us into war. All of them. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq War One, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq War Two, Libya, Syria, Yemen, all of them. But now you can get the ebook, All the War Lies, by me for free. Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get All the War Lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you, too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. And especially when it's so obvious that the conspiring here was between the judge and the prosecutor when he's supposed to be an independent check on them and instead is their deputy, like it's some third world police state or something. I'd say so, yeah. Hmm. Okay. So, man, you have this huge new story about some more informants. Hmm. And these guys infiltrated here are some actual Nazis. And I don't think in Michigan the accusation was that those guys were Nazis. They're just, like, militia guys, which is different. Um, but in this case, you have some guy who's some famous Nazi who is in prison, I guess. And I want to say, who cares what he says? But I already read a bit of this um, last night. I kind of skimmed it. And I think the answer was that he has demonstrated many controversial claims through his access to documents through the Freedom of Information Act, which I didn't know you could do a bunch of FOIAs from prison, but I don't know much of the story. So maybe I'll be quiet and just let you tell us what's going on here. Yeah, sure. So I kind of stumbled across this story while researching these Nazis that the Libertarian Institute has written about recently, uh, these guys that claim they're going to they're gonna set up a training compound in Maine to train Nazis to go fight for the Azov Battalion against Russia. Um, I'm, I'm doing a deep dive into some of these characters, and I realize that there's this guy in prison who's also been filing FOIA requests for these same people. Uh, I look into this prisoner's story and his filings, and it's some of the damnest stuff I've ever seen that's really never been published. Uh, he's got hundreds of court records 
uh, where he's like lobbying for uh, compassionate release or he's trying to sue the prison claiming uh, he's been tortured, which he's actually provided evidence of. And it kind of uh, it paints a picture of the FBI uh, concocting these phony white supremacist groups uh, in the early 2000s and early 2010s, which I think fills in some crucial history of what we know about the Nazi Fed movement, if you want to call it that. Now, the Libertarian Institute obviously has thousands of records about the Nazi Fed movement from the OKC PatCon era. Uh, we know a lot about the Nazi movement in recent years. It's had a, a resurgence. Um, but this kind of fills a missing gap. And, and one of the key findings that this inmate has filed is an FBI memo from 1976 that shows that an FBI informant founded the National Socialist Movement, which is one of the country's oldest and largest uh, Nazi groups you know, in American history. And, and the current relevance of this is that that Nazi group uh, helped plan, they participated in, and they committed violence in the deadly 2017 Charlottesville rally. And we all know that Charlottesville was Joe Biden's, his whole stated rationale for running against Donald Trump was, oh, this is a battle for the soul of America. We got to stop these Nazis. Uh, well, it turns out, according to uh, the records I've reviewed, uh, a lot of these, this, the main Nazi group was created by the FBI. And uh, we can get into it more. Uh, I've got about a 2,000 word story. Uh, that it's it's had informants in prominent positions throughout most of its 50-year history. Man, well, I ain't so surprised. But, yeah, please do tell. I mean, if, I understand if you want people to go read the article, but um, I think we'll do that too. But, yeah, take us through this. Help people understand. Okay, so the original, the, the co-founder's name is Robert Brannon, uh, he was actually one of the original American Nazis. I think like George Lincoln Rockwell uh, was friends with some of the Nazis that survived World War II. He comes or he starts the American Nazi Party. His direct disciple, Robert Brannon, starts this National Socialist Movement in 1974. Two years later, there's a lot of controversy about whether this guy's an FBI informant. And the FBI wrote an internal report saying, uh-oh, Robert Brannon, his, his coverage, his cover might have been blown. Uh, we're worried that all his friends are accusing him of being an informant. And that's the record I just recently found that proves this group was started by an informant. Uh, in any event, the co-founder uh, would lead the group for another 10 years until the 80s. Uh, the group was eventually passed to a guy named Jeff Scoop in 1994. And now Jeff Scoop is a really interesting guy. Uh, he's been accused of being a FBI informant um, by this Nazi inmate. I haven't found hardcore proof of that. Um, but the interesting part is that this guy leads the National Socialist Movement from 94 up until 2017, the deadly Unite the Right rally uh, that was, you know, Joe Biden's whole impotence for running for president. And then after essentially destroying the group by having to participate in that deadly event, this Jeff Scoop guy has a change of heart. Suddenly, he's not a Nazi anymore. He's he's reformed. And now currently, he's 
on the board of an organization that gets DHS funding, and he openly works with the FBI and other law enforcement. Uh, so he, I talked to him. He he bristled at the suggestion that he was an informant while he was a Nazi, but he <laughs> openly works for law enforcement now. And it just it kind of makes me scratch my head and go, hmm, like, was this guy really reformed or was he actually mm -hmm. undercover the whole time? And but do again, you have any do you have any other indication that he was working with the cops before that? Uh, well, I do have, you know, the, the Nazi inmate, the guy's name is Bill White. Uh, he accuses Jeff Scoop of being an informant during the time they were both in the movement. Uh, he said, you know, we'd always set up rallies like they had this big rally in Toledo, Ohio, that turned violent with clashes with the anti-racist movement or anti-racist alliance, which is kind of a precursor to Antifa. It really looked like a, a earlier version of the Charlottesville rally where these kind of events are uh, set up to, to be combustible. And so he, he feels like Scoop um, was a Fed for that reason. And he also did file uh, an FBI memo that shows that Jeff Scoop talked to the FBI after the arrest of Matthew Hale, which is another white supremacist who had um, solicited an FBI informant to murder a federal judge in the early 2000s. Uh, Jeff Scoop was with Matthew Hale when they were arrested, and Jeff Scoop apparently talked to the feds according to these records. They're heavily redacted. We don't know what he said. Uh, he told me that, you know, I told him my name and that was pretty much it. I refused to talk. Um, but those are there's a lot of smoke, a lot of suspicious circumstantial evidence surrounding this guy. I haven't found any, uh, you know, smoking gun proof that he was a Fed while he was a Nazi. But again, he's now uh, he's now being fully embraced by the FBI and the DHS. You know, what's interesting to me. And I know that this was covered at the time. I don't know if anybody ever did like a deep kind of real investigation as to what was behind this. But at that rally, the way that it worked, if people just picture basically a city square block, that's a park, you had all the right wingers, including Nazis, although they weren't all, there were good people on both sides. <clears throat> but um, there were Nazis there and they're all in the park. And the, um, I guess in the South side of the park, but in the park and then the leftist counter-protesters are in the street to the south and east of them mostly. I guess some uh, to the west as well. But so when the cops shut down the thing, instead of letting all of the right-wingers leave to the north or the west to get out of there, they forced them all to go south straight into the group of counter-protesters. This is the only way out of the park. And the story at the time was that that was a decision of the cops at, you know, the local cops there. But I wonder if that was actually a deliberate provocation on the part of the federal government that they ordered that to happen in order to escalate that crisis. Because, boy, if you wanted to do it deliberately, that's how you would do it, you know? And that is exactly what happened. You can see in the footage, they're forced to walk down the stairs and there's like a guy shooting a homemade flamethrower with a can of WD-40 or something, or hairspray or something, spraying it at them, you know? And and they start fighting. Everybody starts fighting. As, you know, they're forced to walk basically a gauntlet of uh, the opposition there. So, 
and I'm not sympathizing with them. I'm just saying it was the cops who forced the crisis. So. Yeah, and, and to your point, and to tie this back into the Whitmer case, um, people might remember that in like April 2020, all these militias marched on Lansing and the Michigan's capital, and they actually occupied the capital in some kind of right. media event. Uh, well, it turns out um, Christina Urso on Twitter, she's Radix Barum. She's working on a documentary about the Michigan case called Kidnap and Kill. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, but she showed that it was actually the FBI that gave state police orders in Michigan to stand down and let the militias enter the Capitol, which raises all kinds of questions in relation to January 6th. But it shows that, yes, the FBI told the locals to let, you know, kind of let this go to, you know, serve the federal government, whatever purposes they had, whether it was mm -hmm. propaganda or, you know, they were trying to investigate who who was going in or what. But there's definitely precedent for that. And I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at all if a similar thing happened in Charlottesville. Man, what would it take for a state police chief or a local police chief to tell the FBI no? You want me to let them into the Capitol with their rifles while they're angry and confrontational. We've never done that before, but today's the day that we're going to do that because the federal government says that that's what they want to happen here, huh? Okay, everybody stand aside. This is as simple as that. Nobody gets mad and yells on a telephone or gets in anybody's face like an umpire and a coach or any kind of, you know, scene out of a movie. They just comply. Okay, the feds want us to let the militia into the Capitol. And now, I'm sorry, because I lost track, but how many informants were on that crew, do you know? Do in we the know? Charlottesville crew? No, the one that went into inside the Capitol building there in Michigan. Uh, that's a good question. I'm not, I, I don't know. I think Dan Chapel, maybe one or two informants were there at the time. This was early on in 2020 before I think even George Floyd, before the entrapment operation was really in full swing. Uh, but it, it's definitely looks like um, you're setting up early stages for kind of building this case that's totally built on uh, smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, Basic economics, right? I mean, I remember after September 11th, I don't know who it was anymore. Some guy from some conservative think tank that was always a guest on Fox. And they go, so what do you think, man? We're going to have this great Department of Homeland Security, right? And he's like, no, it's terrible. I mean, just think about it. They need terrorist attacks so that they have a reason to protect the homeland. They need for terrorism to happen. If you create a bureaucracy whose sole job is protecting us from things like that, don't you understand? And they're like, all right, we're going to commercial. That's enough of you. And I doubt that guy, whoever it was, ever on Fox again after that. But he was just a conservative who knew economics and was just like, look, man, what do you think's going to happen? The, yeah. it's you public, know, public choice 101. Yeah. Every department makes matters worse. That's their job. So, same thing here. And, and, you know, people really on the right really ought to be internalizing the lesson here is that this is the FBI homeland squad set up for the terror war to persecute innocent Muslims. There's some innocent Muslim guy sitting in a cage because he got tricked into saying he loved Osama for $20,000 right now somewhere. Lots of them. Hundreds of them.
you know, away from their families. They matter too, this whole time, this whole thing. It should be Robert Mueller in there with them or instead of them. Yeah, and a lot of those Muslims are like 18 years old with with mental problems. We've we've seen a couple stories in recent months about that, about uh, Muslim teenagers talking to FBI agents on chat rooms when they're 16 and 17. When they turn 18, they get arrested. I mean, it's the most disgusting things you'll you'll cover in this country, and yet it just happens on a daily basis. It's it's kind of disheartening in many ways, but. Uh, last Friday was a, a very good day and a fun day to be on Twitter and watch at least one of the government's cases against these guys in Michigan collapse. It was, it was very good to see. Yeah. All right. And now I'm sorry if I uh, if you already really uh, narrowed down on this, but was there a specific list of things that you actually learned from this prison Nazis documents here? Okay, so along with the NSM, the National Socialist Movement, uh, being founded by an FBI informant. Yeah, that was the big one, huh? Yeah, that was the big one. The other one, um, that this Nazi has submitted records showing that he's clearly been tortured in prison, which kind of gives, I think, people an inside look at uh, just how corrupt and run down the prison system is. Can you be Uh, more specific there? Yeah, he was held in a brightly lit room for three months uh, in isolation, in which he only slept an average of 56 minutes a night. Um, and that's all documented in his own uh, doctor's records that were that the BOP uh, actually kept. Um, he's got a lot of other allegations, like he was kept in a, in a room that was flooded with human feces, uh, cockroaches, uh, things like that. And, and the Bureau of Prisons have actually denied those allegations. But I mean, it's in black and white medical records that he was definitely uh, kept in uh, sleep deprivation, which he claims was because they were trying to get him to convince uh, some some phony truck bomb plot to assassinate Barack Obama, which I'm still putting together all the elements of that story that might be out in the next couple of days. Uh, but uh, pretty much there was this FBI informant named Hal Turner, who was a radio host in the mid 2000s. Uh, you you probably heard of him, Scott. He was the guy publicly calling for the assassination of Obama on radio waves and again, getting paid by the FBI. Uh, but records this inmate has submitted show that this informant told the FBI that the inmate was planning to assassinate Obama with the truck bomb. It was a totally made up story. And uh, eventually the records cleared the inmate, but nevertheless, uh, they, they did Gitmo-style torture tactics to try to get him to admit it. Man, that is just something else. And, you know, it is, I know how people are, man, with their knee jerk and this and that. The same thing with the terrorists. You really going to make me stick up for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramsey Ben Al-Sheib, huh? Well, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're torturing them then yeah, because torture is wrong. And even no matter how much those guys deserve it, as far as that goes, like, I don't know, however you quantify that, it doesn't matter because nobody has the authority to carry it out. There is no legitimate authority for torturers in government or in the private sector. So you're just going to have to do without no matter how angry you are. Sorry. 
That's the difference between being civilized and being barbarians. And so, you know, there's got to draw a line somewhere. Think tortures the line at the very least, you know? Yeah. And, and that's one of my main reasons for telling this guy's story. Uh, clearly, the government wants to keep him quiet. I mean, another key element of this is he filed a court declaration which names a bunch of alleged informants, including that Jeff Scoop guy who was in Charlottesville that I talked about. Um, and he also names a guy named Billy Roper, who's been in the white nationalist movement since the OKC era. Um, and he uh, he got a letter from the prison warden saying, you you know, you tried to name these guys an informants in letters you were sending out. We blocked those letters. And now you're putting the, their names in court records trying to circumvent our, our mail control. And so now we're putting you on lockdown. We're not letting you mail anybody except your mother and your lawyer. We'll be checking your court filings from here on out. Now, this is all black and white in a letter that I've obtained from the uh, prison warden. And the inmate is now suing the prison uh, for retaliation over those mail restrictions. And uh, surprisingly, another reason that lends him credibility is a, a court in July allowed his lawsuit to su uh, survive preliminary review, which means that even a federal court doesn't find this Nazi's claims entirely meritless. We all know how hard it is to get a fair hearing in federal court. So if judges are actually giving this Nazi leeway to move forward with his claims, I think it's fair game. I think everybody should read the story and uh, see what this guy's uh, claiming. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, of course, they always experiment on our liberties by picking on some person that you don't want to sympathize with. Right. That's why they accused Julian Assange of being a rapist. It wasn't true, but they knew that people would go, oh, that's gross and felonious and bad. So screw him. I don't want to be around that. It's the same reason they do that, you know, kind of thing to a lot of their enemies. And um, same reason, you know, when they deplatform people, they first went after people that nobody really wanted to stick up for. And then it turns out that they go after anybody for anything. So here you go, oh, geez, now here we are on the side of the white supremacists. But no, it's just on the side of not torturing people against the Department of Justice. Doesn't matter who's on the other side of that, or what his name is, or what his background, or what his charges are. And what are his charges anyway, this guy? Did he kill somebody? Okay, so that's a whole other bizarre rabbit hole. Uh, he, he published the personal information of a juror in that aforementioned Matthew Hale case. Uh, so Matthew Hale was accused of soliciting an undercover informant to kill a federal judge. During his trial, this Nazi inmate, Bill White, doxes the jury. Really nasty stuff, saying this is like a gay black guy. He didn't say black guy, I can tell you that. Um, but the DOJ accused him of trying to get his Nazi audience for his uh, the Nazi publications to go kill this guy even though he never gave that explicit instructions. Um, he was convicted, but amazingly, a district judge, after the conviction, uh, overturned the conviction, saying that this violated the First Amendment. Like, he, he, he published the juror's information, but that's, that's his right to do so. And just because he has a nasty audience, you know, that, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have First Amendment rights. 
Um, so he gets out of prison in 2011, but the DOJ appeals the, the judge's decision to squash the conviction, and an appeals court sided with the DOJ. So this Nazi's out on prison, out of prison, and the courts call him and say, "Hey, you got to come back to jail, buddy. Sorry, we, you know, the the earlier judge's decision was overturned." Uh, the Nazi, instead of going back to prison where he'd already been tortured, he flees to Mexico, and he claims that also he had information that FBI informants were going to kill him. I don't know if that's true at all, but in any event, he gets caught in Mexico, hauled back to the U.S. They accused him of sending death, death threats while he was in Mexico on Facebook. Um, very dubious accusations. I think his Facebook was hacked by informants. He submitted very compelling arguments to that effect. Uh, but in any event, uh, because he was a fugitive, they slapped on a bunch of additional charges. He's going to be in jail till at least 2037. And he's been filing all these court records and FOIA requests uh, that I've been reporting on over the last couple of days and, and will continue to do so uh, as long as I find interesting stories. And, and there's a bunch of stuff there. I think it's going to be very fruitful. Man, you sure do interesting work, Ken. I'll tell you that. Oh, well, th- yeah, it all, it all started with Oklahoma City, uh, reading the work of J.D. Cash, uh, Roger Charles, Richard Booth, Wendy Painting. It kind of sends you down a rabbit hole. And I think... <laughs> This is kind of my beat now, these weird intersections of organized crime, Nazis, and the federal government. Uh, but, but yeah, thank you. It, it's, uh, it's interesting, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. Great stuff, man. HeadlineUSA.com. Fed Files 2, FBI informant created one of the largest Nazi groups in American history by Ken Silva. And that one will be running at LibertarianInstitute.org by the time you hear this, probably, too. Yes, Thanks sir. again, Ken. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSRadio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.